everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Sean. And this is Key to the Case. Welcome back. Thank you all for joining us today. And special thank you to our listener, Shelby, for requesting today's case. This is quite a chilling one, so let's get into it. Amanda Tussing, who went by Mandy, was 20 years old at the time of her death in 2000. Mandy grew up in Dell, Arkansas, a small town that only had a population of about 250 people in 2000. Mandy had two brothers, one who was her twin, and two loving parents. She was kind of a tomboy growing up. She wasn't afraid of much, and she went on to be the captain of her high school's basketball team. She enjoyed other sports as well. She was kind of all-around athletic. Mandy's characterized as a down-to-earth, highly intelligent, and strong-willed young woman. Mandy began dating a young man she went to school with named Matt, and they maintained their relationship after graduation. Mandy stayed at home with her parents and enrolled in a local community college. And at the time of her murder, she had recently earned an associate's degree. Mandy had a love for animals and she aspired to become a veterinarian one day. So it made sense when she began working at a local veterinarian's office shortly before her death. Just about three months before Mandy's death, her boyfriend of two years at that point, Matt, proposed to her. And Mandy was filled with excitement. According to Investigation Discovery's Still a Mystery, Mandy's parents really liked Matt and they were glad to see their only daughter so happy. And her mom was fully committed to making sure Mandy's wedding day was everything she hoped for. The wedding was set to be in June 2001, which would have been you know, about a year after Mandy's death. So Mandy's life was going in an exciting direction before it was cut short. So is Matt living in the same town as Mandy at this point in the story? No. So he moved away from Dell. I mean, not super far, but he was living in an apartment in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And Jonesboro is about 44 miles to the east of Dell, where Amanda was still living. And Jonesboro is home to Arkansas State University. And I couldn't confirm this, but I mean, it seems plausible that Matt moved there to attend that university since he was from the same area Mandy was from. But I don't know a whole lot about what he was doing at that time, if he was working or in school or both. Okay, so somewhat of a long distance, I guess not long distance, but... Not exactly down the road from one another. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you consider that long distance or not, but you can't get to each other super quickly, but you can easily, you know, in a day. And she often visited him in Jonesboro. And although Mandy was an adult, she still had a curfew of 1 a.m. that she never had a problem adhering to. Mandy struck me as a very responsible person, so it wasn't surprising to learn that she was always home by curfew. On Wednesday, June 14th, 2000, Mandy left Dell to go see Matt in Jonesboro. The pair ate dinner at a restaurant together and then returned to his apartment. Once they got back, they watched TV and just kind of dozed off on the couch, only to be startled awake by a thunderstorm that rolled in. Mandy realized it was getting late when she woke up and said she should head out, but Matt suggested she stay at his apartment so she wouldn't have to drive in the dark, stormy night. 
Manny's drive back to Dell would have taken about 50 minutes to an hour, and there would be stretches of her commute with no streetlights. So if you combine the darkness and the rain, her visibility would have decreased. So these were not really ideal conditions to be driving home in. However, I'm sure Mandy had made this trip plenty of times in the past since this is where Matt lived. Yeah, I'm sure her parents would have been totally fine with it, I would think. If she called them and said, hey, it's storming here and it's already getting kind of late, I don't want to risk it driving back an hour back to uh, Dell. Yeah, I think they would have preferred her to be safe right? right, in that situation. But they haven't really talked about that decision much. Despite Matt asking Mandy to stay over at his apartment, Mandy decided to make the drive home because she had to be up early the following day. Mandy left Matt's home around 11.30 p.m., and Matt asked her to call him when she made it home safely, to which Mandy agreed, and this was normal for them. He always liked to know when she made it home. Mandy took Arkansas Highway 18 to get back home. And like I said, this would be a dark drive at this time of night. And this is a rural highway. It's not necessarily what comes to mind when most people imagine a highway. It's uh, a four-lane highway with two lanes going east and two lanes going west with open fields on either side of the road for much of the drive. 1.30 a.m. rolled around. So two hours after Mandy left Matt's apartment, And Matt began to grow concerned because he hadn't heard from her yet. And I think in a situation like this, you could try to justify it for a bit. Okay, it's been an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. But once you get to two hours and the drive should have only taken just under an hour, that would be concerning. The only reasonable and and really good explanation would be that Mandy forgot to call Matt. So he phoned Mandy's parents' home around 1.30 a.m. to see if she made it there, and Mandy's mom answered his call. She indicated that Mandy hadn't made it home, so at that point, no one knew where Mandy was and why she wasn't home yet. Mandy's mom called her husband, Mandy's dad, who was at work. He worked overnight and she let him know that Mandy hadn't made it home. This was clearly a concerning moment because, as I said before, Mandy was responsible. She was always home by curfew. So they started running through scenarios of what could have happened. I think my first thought or my first concern would be a car accident. They wondered if something went wrong with her car and she had to pull over. Mandy had a cell phone, so if she needed help, she would have been able to call someone. However, her mom shared that it was not unusual for her phone's battery to be drained, and they figured that was the case because when they and Matt tried to call her, there was no answer. As soon as Mandy's dad was able to leave work, he and his son, Mandy's twin brother, set out to drive along Highway 18. Matt set out on Highway 18 as well, coming from the opposite direction. So Matt was driving east and Mandy's dad and brother were driving west in the hope that one of them would come across her and everything would be okay. Sometime between 2 and 3 a.m., Matt came across Mandy's 1992 Pontiac Grand Am. Her car was parked on the side of the road in front of a residence and under a streetlight. Now, I don't have the exact coordinates of where Mandy's car was found, but it's typically reported that it was parked on Highway 18, just about a mile west of the city of Monette, Arkansas, 
So with that information, when I looked at it on a map, I can tell that she made it about halfway home before she pulled over on the side of the road. So was the car like right on the highway or did it look like she would have had to drive off a little bit to where the car was located? So my understanding is that she was still on the highway, like on the shoulder of the highway. I don't think she ever exited at any point. Okay. When Mandy's dad and brother and Matt came upon her car, they first observed that Mandy was not with her vehicle. Mandy's car door was unlocked, and when they looked inside, they saw that the keys were still in the ignition, but the car was turned off. Additionally, her windshield wipers were stopped mid-swipe on her windshield, indicating that she hadn't turned them off before switching her car off. When they turned the keys in the ignition, they saw she had plenty of gas, they heard her radio playing her favorite station, and the car started with no issue, nearly ruling out that she had to pull over because her car wasn't operating properly. One of the most logical explanations for her to pull over would be car trouble. So if that's not the case here, then why did Mandy pull over and where is she? It also doesn't make much sense that if Mandy needed to leave her vehicle to walk to get help for any reason, that she would leave the keys in the ignition. Mandy's dad and Matt noticed there was a half-full Coke can that was still cool to the touch in a cup holder. And Mandy's wallet and cell phone were in the car, but... Sure enough, the cell phone was dead. The Coke's kind of interesting. Did Mandy take a Coke from Matt's apartment or house when she left? Does he know that? So seems like a really straightforward question, right? I, I couldn't find a credible source that stated where the Coke came from. So I'm inclined to think we, we don't know where it came from. And if we don't know where it came from, then it probably didn't come from Matt's apartment. But there seems to be a big deal made out of how the Coke was still cool to the touch. And I want to get your thoughts on this. So I brought up the storm that night already, but the temperature at the time Mandy was driving home was right around 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 21 degrees Celsius. So at that temperature, I I guess it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that it could still be cool. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she left at 1130 and... Matt didn't call until 1.30, so that's two hours after. And I, you said Mandy's dad had to wait until he got off work or until he could leave work to go look for her. So at this point, it's three or more hours after she left. Right, because they found the car between 2 and 3 a.m. Yeah, so I think at that point, unless she got it, well, this is where it's weird. I, I would think... If she got it from Matt's and she left at 11.30 and they found the car at 2.30 and half of it was already gone, assuming she drank half of it you know, in the first 10, 15 minutes that she was driving, then I would think at that point it, it would reach room temperature if it came from Matt's. Yeah. So I think it most likely didn't come from Matt's, but she probably got it shortly after leaving Matt's. Right, so it's since, the same concept. Yeah. Since it was still cold. Surely it couldn't have come from Matt's. And there aren't even that many places to just stop off. The reason I keep thinking she got it right after leaving Matt's is because there would be more places, I think, in Jonesboro to go 
buy a can of Coke somewhere, then there would be along this rural highway from Jonesboro to Dell. I think there would just be fewer options. It also seems like something someone might remember. An employee at a gas station or convenience store seems like something they might remember if you catch it, catch them soon enough to ask them. But I didn't read anything about anyone coming forward with that information. Also, I just, it's like, what does it mean if it's still cool to the touch? Okay, so how did I, that's what I, I, I can't make sense of. Like, where did this come from? Why is it still cold? I think it would mean she got it hours after 1130, right? It could, but then why, you know, where yeah, was that's, she? That's the question. Yeah. Okay, one more question. You said the her car was off the shoulder of the highway, but it was parked, somewhat parked in front of a house. Did Matt and Manny's dad and her brother go up to that house and knock on it and say, hey, looking for my daughter and my sister, whatever. And her car is parked right in front of your house. Did you see her? Yes. They did start going around, not just to that house, but any homes in the area. And I don't, again, I don't have the exact coordinates of where she pulled over. It would have been nice to have those so I could see how close she was parked to the residence because it may have been a home that was set far back from the road or something. I can't imagine it was super close to the highway, but no, I don't know. So they didn't provide anything useful as far as I'm aware. No one in the area, people who lived in the area, uh, in homes in the area, I mean, really had any information at all. Mandy's parents told Still a Mystery that they taught Mandy that if she ever needed to pull over on the side of a road, she should do it in a well-lit area with houses nearby. So when they saw her car under a street lamp near a house, that aligned with what she was taught. Mandy's family began to wonder if she had some sort of medical emergency. Maybe she was disoriented and confused and wandered off to get help. They were simply trying to make sense of the situation. They realized that whatever was going on here was beyond them, and they called the police to report Mandy as a missing person. When deputies from the Craighead County Sheriff's Office arrived, they took a close look at Mandy's car and came to the same conclusion as her family had. There was nothing mechanically wrong with Mandy's vehicle. As soon as the sun rose on June 15th, a search for Mandy began in the area surrounding where her car was found. The terrain in this area of Craighead County has been described as rugged, so this is not a simple task. The search went on for a few days until June 18th, which was Father's Day that year. According to the Baxter Bulletin, that afternoon there was heavy rain and a couple was driving carefully across the Twin Bridges on Arkansas 135 near Leicester when they spotted what appeared to be a pair of jeans floating in the rain-swollen Big Bay Ditch. Fearful that they saw a body floating, they pulled over to investigate. They searched along the ditch until they came upon blood and a body. They then contacted authorities and let them know what they found. This location was about 12 miles or 19 kilometers west from where Mandy's car was found. Recall that Mandy was headed east that night. So she kind of went back in the direction she came from. Craighead County Sheriff's deputies arrived shortly thereafter. And once they saw the dead body, they had their suspicions that it was Mandy. 
And their suspicions were confirmed when they found her driver's license in a pocket of her pants. One question I had was, was this normal for Mandy to keep her driver's license just in her pocket rather than in a wallet or a purse? And her mom has said that that was something Mandy often did. She had a tendency to just keep her ID in a pocket. And I'm glad we have that information. Otherwise, you you could look at that detail as a clue of sorts. Law enforcement suspected that Mandy had been in the water for three or four days, so essentially the entire duration that she was missing. Mandy's family received the devastating news right away. Mandy's dad told Still a Mystery that he kept thinking about how the last time he saw Mandy, he just said goodbye like it was any other day. He didn't hug her or happen to tell her he loved her, and you could tell that bothered him, but there was no way for him or anyone to know what was to come. Mandy's mom talked about how they suddenly went from planning a wedding to then planning a funeral, and that's an apparent yet dreadful juxtaposition. The location of Mandy's body was rather secluded. So initial thought was that whoever put her here was familiar with the area, likely not an outsider. Some reports state that when Mandy was found, she was fully clothed, but then more recent reports claim that her t-shirt was missing. Mandy's body was taken to Arkansas's state crime lab in Little Rock for an autopsy, and the results were strange. There were no signs of sexual assault, and the only visible injury was a small bruise on the back of Mandy's head. It was unclear if Mandy were alive or dead when she was put in the water. Water was found in Mandy's nostrils, but her lungs were void of any water. One theory is that Mandy was suffocated before she was put into the water. Gary Etter, a detective with the Craighead County Sheriff's Office who has worked with this case intimately, told KAIT News in 2012 that the medical examiner reported that Mandy's autopsy results were consistent with drowning, and he asked the medical examiner if a person who drowns would have to have water in their lungs, and the medical examiner said no. So although it's possible Mandy drowned and the results seemed Consistent with that, apparently, a cause of death was never officially determined. I wanted to be sure to note that no cause of death was established because some reports in this case will say that Mandy drowned, as if that's fact, but that's more of an assumption based on the circumstances because no official cause of death was declared. I think the theory that Mandy was dead when she entered the water aligns with the lack of water in her lungs, although the medical examiner clearly stated that it's a possibility that Mandy drowned. And then working against this, Mandy didn't have any defensive wounds on her body. There were a struggle. You'd think there might be evidence of that. Yeah, you did say she had a small bruise on the back of her head. Maybe she got hit in the head with something small and somehow that knocked her unconscious and then she got put in the water and drowned. That is an interesting theory. Yeah. That someone rendered her unconscious and then killed her. So she wouldn't be able to fight back. Yeah. Investigators were disappointed with the results of the autopsy. They really hoped for more conclusive results. 
Drowning is an unusual method of murder to begin with. And looking at statistics regarding the number of homicides by method of killing in the U.S., drowning consistently covered well below 1% of homicides. This was looking at data from 2013 to 2017. Although the data may not have been 100% complete, it's still a low number. Yeah, somehow with drowning as a way to kill someone, it strikes me as really personal for some reason. Like you're holding someone under the water. I mean, it's just messed up, but it, it seems seems pretty personal. I agree. And it when I think of homicide by drowning, I think of a bathtub, not a ditch. Like maybe something that happens inside the home. Like in instances where I've heard have heard of this, it's typically between a couple and it happens within their own home, not a random body of water. Yeah, and it's not really a, an instantaneous way to do it, right? Like a gun. That would be pretty pretty quick. Yes, that's right. But I guess a gun, you might leave behind more evidence right. than drowning someone. But it also, we can talk about this more later, but it's also like, what is the motive for this type of murder? if that's what happened. Mandy's car was taken in for examination. It was scrubbed for physical evidence, such as fingerprints, blood, hair fibers, and DNA. The technicians didn't recover any significant evidence in Mandy's vehicle, which led police to believe that maybe the offender never went inside her car. And we'll be sure to try to share some of the pictures of Mandy's car to our Instagram, Key of the Case podcast, In one picture, you can see bridal magazines in the back of her car. And it's just a depressing reminder of the excitement that was to come in Mandy's life before her death. Matt was questioned right off the bat. Not only was he her fiance, he was also the last person known to see her alive. So he serves as a natural starting point in the investigation. Matt was cooperative with the investigation. He answered all the questions the police had. He consented to a search of his apartment. There was no known strife in their relationship, and Matt passed multiple polygraph exams. Everything I just listed there works in his favor, and police were unable to find any evidence to tie him to Mandy's death, so Matt was ruled out as a suspect. With few other persons of interest, police had to consider that a stranger was responsible for Mandy's assumed abduction and murder. Fear was struck in the community, and law enforcement urged residents to be careful and to take precautions until resolution came to Mandy's case. Several women came forward to share that someone attempted to pull them over at night, so Anyone traveling alone at night in the area was told to be cautious and be sure that they knew who was trying to pull them over and to only pull over in a well-lit area. Reportedly, dozens of calls came in from people all over the state of Arkansas saying that someone attempted to get them to pull over by flashing their lights at them around this time. I think someone flashing their headlights could mean a few things. I generally think of it as a way to signal someone else that their headlights aren't on. I wouldn't assume someone wants me to pull over if they flash their lights at me. So maybe there was something to some of these calls, but there could have been instances where people were on edge after learning of Mandy's case because of what I will tell you in a moment. 
Yeah, I don't know if you can really say that someone's trying to pull you over if they're just flashing their brights. Like that's that's not where that's not what I think first when someone's flashing their brights at me. Maybe I usually think I'm going too slow or something. Right. Oh, yeah. That's another option too. Like if they're behind you, yeah. they could be trying to indicate <laughs> go faster or move over, even like if you're in the fast lane. They want you to get over in a different lane. Yeah. Mandy's family has made it clear that she would not have pulled over for just anyone. So the possibility arose that either a police officer or someone impersonating an officer turned their sirens or lights on to get Mandy to pull over. Mandy's family felt confident that this was a highly likely scenario. Many people were reminded of the so-called blue light rapist, an Arkansas man named Robert Todd Birmingham, who was accused of using a blue light on top of his car to impersonate law enforcement and get women to pull over to then attack them. Robert was convicted of raping two different women in 1997, making it impossible that he was responsible in Mandy's murder since he was incarcerated at the time. Yeah, there also weren't any signs that a sexual assault took place either. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, even though we know he couldn't have been responsible, it's like it doesn't necessarily fit what he was doing. Robert was accused of raping two other women, but charges were not brought in those cases. Fortunately, his victims survived the attacks. Additionally, Robert's attacks occurred a couple of hours away from where Mandy's car was abandoned. So although Robert couldn't have been connected, the idea still stands that something similar could have happened to Mandy. After about three weeks, a few leads, the local police contacted the FBI for assistance. The FBI crafted a profile of the offender, and the profile could align with someone in law enforcement. There have been some statements from investigators in the case that indicate that they were nearly certain a law enforcement officer was not involved, but more recent coverage indicates they certainly haven't ruled that possibility out. This could be a matter of varying opinions within the department. There is no evidence that Mandy was forcibly removed from her car, so could she have been asked by someone impersonating a police officer or an actual police officer, to get out of her vehicle. It appeared that she willingly got out of her car. To further bolster this theory, according to Still a Mystery, a witness came forward once he heard about Mandy's case and the vehicle she drove. He shared that he saw Mandy's car stopped that night in the location where it was ultimately found, and he saw a Craighead County Sheriff's Department patrol car behind her vehicle. As far as I could find, this was the only witness who saw this, and it's unclear what time he saw this or when exactly he came forward to police. When he saw a picture of Mandy's car, he instantly knew it was the car he saw. This is compelling information and could be huge if it's accurate. We finally have a witness who believes they saw Mandy's car that night, but It's also startling because the car they saw behind it would have been a member of the investigating agency. I imagine when police learned this information, Matt became even less interesting in their eyes. There was no useful video footage at all in Mandy's case, and that's probably to be expected. 
where Mandy's car was parked would not have been visible to any security cameras. Although police visited a local convenience store that they believe Mandy would have passed on her drive, but they didn't find anything useful on that footage. And from what I could tell, they didn't even see her car on the footage. Several law enforcement officers within the surrounding communities were interviewed in relation to her case. Investigators even focused on one unnamed man as a prime suspect. This police officer was interviewed and he participated in a polygraph exam and the results were inconclusive. This officer was working the night in question and he even arrived on the scene of Mandy's car when Mandy's family called the police. But the polygraph was more or less irrelevant and police were unable to find any evidence to connect him to the crime, which led to another dead end. I will say it would be quite brazen for an officer to do something like this while on the clock. He would surely be unaccounted for for a period. And if he were called to a scene and needed to get there rapidly, it could have taken a while. And his uh, uniform and his shoes or boots or whatever he was wearing would have been, I'm assuming they would have been filthy since it was, oh, yeah, since good it was point. raining. It was a thunderstorm that night and he would have had to walk through a bunch of mud to get her body where it was, right? So Yeah. Yeah. If he, he placed would, her body in the ditch, it probably was muddy over there. Yeah. And then if he showed up to the scene of Manny's car covered, covered in, in mud, mud yeah. they would be like, where were you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> why do you look like that? So there definitely would have been a risk there if he's the one responsible. This also seems like the kind of crime to me someone wouldn't commit once and never again, although it's possible, but if the offender killed Mandy for the sake of killing, it seems likely they would want to do it again. Investigators worked with agencies in other states, namely Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas, to review cases of a similar nature, but no links were ever made. A year after Mandy's death, her family attempted to get Unsolved Mysteries to cover her case, but Matt reportedly did not want to be interviewed, so Unsolved Mysteries declined. In 2002, they tried again, and Matt agreed to a phone interview, but allegedly Unsolved Mysteries wanted an in-person interview. So again, the case was not aired. Mandy's family has never expressed suspicion of Matt, and neither have the police. It's very possible Matt was worried about what people would think of him. The partner of someone who goes missing or is murdered is always suspect number one, so he could have feared backlash. He also could have consulted with an attorney who initially advised him not to participate at all. About 11 years prior to Mandy's death in 1989, a young woman named Dana Stidham disappeared one afternoon from northwestern Arkansas, about a five-hour drive away from the location of Mandy's car. She was supposed to be running a quick errand, and when she didn't return, her family was concerned. Hours later, Dana's abandoned car was found in the southbound lane of Highway 71. The keys were still in the ignition, the driver's side window was halfway down, and her belongings were missing from the car. Nearly two months after Dana disappeared, a hunter came upon her remains in a shallow grave in a heavily wooded area within Benton County, the same county she disappeared from. Dana's death was ruled a homicide, but police have not revealed 
the cause of death. In Dana's case, police believe they know who's responsible. Uh, a former classmate of Dana's who seemed to have a special interest in her, that was not reciprocated. The police had circumstantial evidence against him, but never quite enough to make a case. So although Dana's case has some similarities to Mandy's and is often brought up when Mandy's case is brought up, there's no known evidence to connect them. This case is tough because we have two scenes. We have the scene of Mandy's car and then the ditch where her body was disposed of, yet we know there's a third scene, possibly even a fourth, depending on what happened. Someone had to transport Mandy to the ditch in a vehicle and... Is that where the crime occurred? In the vehicle? Possibly. And unfortunately, if that third location were known at the time of the crime, it would have been a huge piece of evidence. Part of what makes this case so haunting is that it feels as though anyone could have been a victim that night. It's possible she was specifically targeted, but that seems unlikely with the information we have. I've heard of similar cases where someone's car is found on the side of the road and the theory emerges that someone impersonating law enforcement or an actual police officer is responsible. And I always wonder if that's the case, how is the offender picking victims, especially at night? If your intended victim is a young woman, for example, how would you know that the person you're about to pull over is just that? I suppose it'd be easier for a real police officer because they could just go through the motions of a routine traffic stop until they found the right victim. Or maybe the offender would sit at a certain location and wait for the potential victim to drive off. That seems unlikely in Mandy's case since she had already driven for roughly 30 minutes before she pulled over. Investigators in the case have indicated that they believe this was not the offender's first time doing something like this due to the lack of evidence. They have also indicated that a law enforcement officer would know how to conceal evidence more than the average person. I'm still hung up on the lack of anything that shows that there was a struggle of any kind. Like She didn't have any apparent bruising anywhere else except for that tiny one on the back, back of her head. But that Based on what you're saying, that didn't really amount to anything, right? So I'm just kind of, I'm wondering how how it all went down. Could this person have? Could they have used something like? It seems bizarre, but could they have used something like chloroform on a cloth and to make her pass out and then drown her? That's really interesting that you say that because that's what a psychic in this case said she was told happened. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to tell you about that. So I think it's a possibility. I, I, I lean more towards thinking that Mandy was already dead when she entered the water. I know we can't say with certainty, but that's seems more likely to me. So multiple psychics have been involved in Mandy's case and her story was even featured on a court TV show called haunting evidence several years after her murder. The focus of the show was to follow three psychics as they investigated unsolved murders. I couldn't find a copy of this episode online, but from the description I read about it, they didn't provide much additional input or theories that we haven't already explored, but they did provide a few. They said that perhaps Mandy was already pulled over for some reason when a person approached her car to offer help. I think she could have even pulled over if the 
rain was super heavy and she was having trouble seeing. She could have thought, I'll just wait this out for a little bit. Seems like a possibility. The psychic suggested that the person then covered Mandy's face with a cloth that made her fall unconscious, likely with the use of chloroform. They believe the killer took a picture of Mandy and her murder was a part of a series of murders. Directions to the supposed killer's home were provided, as well as a physical description that prompted the creation of a sketch, although I couldn't find this sketch. I know there's nothing scientific about this, and it clearly didn't lead to the killer, but I wanted to share it anyway because the investigators did take everything the psychic said into account. And I do think it is interesting from a theoretical perspective of what could have happened. Yeah, nothing nothing indicates that there was a fight back or a struggle or anything. So it would have had to have been something like that, right? Yeah, you would think, because I certainly think Mandy would have fought back unless there are other, other possibilities that a weapon was used to... Um, stop her from fighting back. In 2007, ABC News reported that there was a promising new lead when someone came forward to claim they overheard people discussing Mandy's murder, but apparently that lead fizzled out as I couldn't find any follow-up on it. There was a similar report prior to that in 2003 about an individual who allegedly had information in Mandy's case, but again, nothing came from that. According to KAIT News, in 2023, a detective was assigned to Mandy's case who had never laid eyes on her case before. The hope was that a fresh set of eyes, coupled with improved technology, could be just what Mandy's case needs to reach resolution. The newly assigned detective came across details that prompted him to go down previously unexamined avenues. This is really promising recent information. I mean, 2023 was only last year. It's exciting to hear and encouraging to hear this kind of information in a case that is going on 24 years old. Mandy's case is one of only four unsolved murders that Craighead County was handling as of 2023. So hopefully that's an indication that Mandy will get the proper attention needed to solve the case. Mandy's family never expected her case to grow cold, and they feared that the person who harmed Mandy would harm others. Over the years, Mandy's parents have done everything they can to keep Mandy's case out there. Mandy's mom passed away in 2021 without receiving answers, but before her death, she was always clear that she would not let the person who did this ruin their family. She would not give the killer that satisfaction. She believed that Mandy would have wanted the family to go on and continue to live their lives. So although they tried to do that, they never stopped missing Mandy, nor did they stop searching for justice. And she still has plenty of family members around who are still pushing this today. If you have any information related to the murder of Amanda Tussing, please call the Craighead County Sheriff's Office at 870-933-4551. Thank you all for tuning in today. Please feel free to share your thoughts with us in this case. You can reach us through email at keytothecase at gmail.com or on Instagram at keytothecasepodcast. That's all for now, but we'll be back next week with a new case. Bye. Bye.